He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us by the washing of regeneration that is the renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your many blessings to us beyond anything that we can ask or think as Paul concludes our section in Ephesians, end of chapter 3, that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing and we have no idea that the scope of that word every. Father, we are amazed at all that you have given us and all that we have learned about what you have given us in our study of Ephesians, our study on the Holy Spirit. And we are so thankful that we are each indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, that we cannot lose that indwelling of the Holy Spirit no matter what, that he is working in our lives to make us as individuals as well as as the church as a whole a unified body for your dwelling. And, Father, we can't even understand all that that implies, but that is so beyond anything that we can think. Help us now as we continue our study about the Holy Spirit's ministries today. Help us to understand these in the light of your word that we might um, apply these realities and these commands consistently. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and today we are going to look at two things related to what we covered last time, that is the filling by means of God the Holy Spirit, and that is this idea of the grieving of the Holy Spirit and quenching the Holy Spirit, and this takes us to two passages, the only two passages that mention each of these. Uh, Grieving is mentioned in Ephesians 4.30, and quenching is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Now, we are studying Ephesians, and at the end of chapter 2, we've seen these two verses. For through him, that is through Christ, we both have access by one spirit. So here we see the different roles of the Trinity. It is Christ who gives us access to the Father by his death for us on the cross. He died for our sins so that the sin barrier was removed. But that doesn't mean we're automatically saved. We still have to trust in him, believe in him, and if we do not, then we are already condemned. That's John 3:18. So we have the emphasis on the fact that we have access by one spirit to the Father. We mean Jew and Gentile, save Jews and Gentiles, no longer that barrier between Jew and Gentile, and because of the cross, no longer that barrier between us and God. And then at the end of that section, in Ephesians 2.22, Paul again refers to the Holy Spirit and says, in whom you, that is, you Gentiles also, also along with us Jewish believers, are being built together, so this is a corporate idea, for a dwelling place of God by means of the Spirit. And I've talked about this phrase, by means of, translating the Greek preposition in, and we'll review the significance of that as we look at um, filling a little bit later in our uh, introduction. So the ministries of the Holy Spirit we've covered today, to the world he is restraining evil, 
And he is also convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and justice. Sin because they have not believed. And that takes us back to what I mentioned a minute ago, John 3.18. Condemnation is because we have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. At the time of salvation, God the Holy Spirit regenerates us. That's Titus 3.5. We have the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. That is 1 Corinthians 12.13, but must be understood in light of Matthew chapter 3.13. We have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians uh, 3.15 and 6.13, and that we are all permanently indwelt by the Spirit. We are sealed by the Spirit. That takes us to Ephesians chapter 1. I believe that's 1.14. And then last time, the filling by the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. See how many of these are mentioned in this epistle of Ephesians. And then the illumination. Now, what's interesting... Uh, is that so many of these, as I pointed out, have confusion about them. It's just amazing. We're going to look at, I don't have leading in here. No, leading, that will be next week. comes between filling and illumination. So we've looked at what the Bible teaches about the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today, and last time it was about what the Bible teaches about being filled by the Spirit. I didn't realize until I was going through the slides this morning that I did not have the correct slide up on being filled by the Spirit. So we see the baptism by the Spirit at the instant of salvation. Then God, the Holy Spirit, is used by the Lord Jesus Christ to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are placed in Christ. That is our new legal position before God. We are in Christ, and we are also indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, Those have to do with eternal realities, our eternal position before God. This is our new identity in Christ as church-age believers, members of the church, the bride of Christ. All of these terms that are used to describe us give us such an elevated position in this church age. But there's experiential realities or temporal realities. We may be indwelt by the Spirit, but... We are to be filled by means of the Spirit, which is approximately the same as walking by means of the Spirit. And we can either be filled or not be filled. And it's a binary command. When you have a command like be filled by means of the Spirit, either you are or you aren't. And walk by the Spirit is also binary. Either you're walking or you're not walking, one or the other. And you, it's not a little bit of one or a little bit of the other. You, people will sometimes say, well, you know, we all do things for mixed motives. Well, speak for yourself. If you've got mixed motives, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, as Paul says in Corinthians. If you're doing things for mixed motives, then it's, it's still sinful. Okay? A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A right thing done for a wrong reason is wrong. So we are to, then we have to confess sin. And we studied this whole concept of being filled by the Spirit in light of Ephesians 5.18, that the content wasn't described there. We're filled with something. The means by the filling is the Holy Spirit. And as long as we're walking by the Spirit, then we're walking in the light. That's why I have a white circle there. We're walking in the light. But when we sin then we're no longer walking in the light. We're walking in darkness. We're walking according to our sin nature. And this is described, theologians use the word carnality or fleshly. We're living on the basis of our sin nature and not on the basis of the the, uh, word of God, not on the basis of the Holy Spirit. And so we confess sin. Now, when we're living in carnality and we're living on the basis of the sin nature, you have these two passages in Scripture that describe it as grieving and or quenching the Holy Spirit. So Ephesians 5.18, not that far from Ephesians 4.30. We're going to have to look at this context. You would be surprised. Most of you have heard me teach this many times. You've heard others teach this many times. It's like, well, this is, this is just... Uh, uh, so easy and so basic. Every time I go through this, I observe some other things. 
that, but we're a minority. We, we believe in the free grace gospel. That makes us a pretty slim minority. We believe in dispensations. That makes it a slimmer minority. We believe that it's important to confess sin in order to walk by the Spirit. That's an even slimmer minority. And it's getting slimmer all the time because the pastors and theologians that are, that, that fill our pulpits and lecterns are all drifting and have drifted off course. So we have to constantly remind this. It's amazing how many new listeners we pick up all the time online, all over the world. And so this goes out. So it's important for new people to understand this and as well as for us to be reminded. So we saw that this phrase, with the Spirit, is translates the Greek phrase, in pneumaty, with indicates content. Fill my cup with that coffee. Okay, that's the coffee's the content. But if you say, fill my cup with the pitcher, the pitcher isn't what you're putting into the cup. The pitcher is the means of filling the cup with what's in the pitcher. Okay, and so when we're filled by means of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is like that pitcher, and what comes out of it is what fills it. Now, what is that? Well, we saw it last time that when we talk about being filled by means of the Spirit, he's filling us with something, and that's seen in the parallel passage in Colossians 3.16, which gives all the same results that we saw in Ephesians 5.19 and following, that we are, but there it doesn't mention the Spirit. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And so that's the idea. You have the Holy Spirit and the Word of Christ. They work together. The Holy Spirit is filling us uh, with his Word. And this is what happens while we are walking by means of the Spirit. But if we stop walking by the Spirit, the alternative is that we're grieving the Spirit. We're quenching the Spirit. And then... We will fulfill the lust because we are not walking by the Spirit. We're fulfilling the lust of the flesh, and this is what grieves or quenches uh, the Holy Spirit. And last time I pointed out, because of the confusion that exists over this, uh, scholars who take both of these Greek words as synonyms. The, the first word is a word that's used in this passage. It's plerao, and here it is used as an imperative. It's a command. You either are filled or you're not filled, one or the other. And yet it's used in some other places where the grammar is different. For And it usually has the idea of filling, like, for example, filled your heart. Your heart here is in the genitive. In our passage in Ephesians, um, Ephesians 5.18, the spirit is in the dative case. That's the instrumental case. So this gets into grammar, and I know I see eyes glaze over when I mention it, but it's important because they're two different meanings completely. And so uh, Acts 5.3 is an example. Acts 5.28 is a little more clear. Did we not strictly command you not to teach? This is a, a head of the Sanhedrin uh, uh, speaking to Peter and John in Acts 5. Did not? Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. See, with your doctrine is the same grammar, or is not the same grammar as in Ephesians 5.18. But often Ephesians 5.18 is translated, be filled with the Spirit. See, with implies content, and that's what if uh, Acts 5.28 is talking about, you have filled Jerusalem with what? What's the content of the filling? It's your teaching. It's, it's everywhere. So it's used a genitive case, and so it's completely different. And that's the problem that you have throughout Acts. And you have it used again in Acts 13.52, and the disciples were filled with joy, once again, content, and with the Holy Spirit, here it's content because it's distinctive. It's describing spiritual maturity here. It's, it was an idiom. So you can't break it down into the grammar and syntax and come up with what the meaning is. A lot of things that we use, a lot of phrases that we use are idioms. They're not 
necessarily exactly what the literal meaning is. You, you will never become aware of how idiomatic your language is until you go teach in a foreign country through a translator. And you will start saying certain things, and they look at you like you just grew a couple of horns on your head and they have lost your mind because they don't understand uh, the idiom. For example, if you say, well, that's the third strike and three strikes you're out. That may communicate to an American audience who knows something about baseball, but it doesn't say anything to some uh, tribe in Irian Jaya or a tribe in Africa that has no concept of what baseball is. So we use these idioms, these phrases all the time, and so when you have this verb to be filled with double accusatives or you, with two things, that indicates just a description of a person's character. The other word, pimplemi, we saw is very different. It has often or almost 98% of the time it's immediately followed by someone speaking. For example, in uh, Luke 141, Elizabeth, this is the mother of... Um, Oh, boy. New computers are so much fun, aren't they? I can't figure out how. There we go. Uh, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, it's content. It's not by means. It is a genitive, and it's been me. And so afterwards she speaks. And this is what we see in other passages with Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. He's uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies. Pimplemi indicates like a prophetic utterance. The Holy Spirit is giving it some kind of inspiration. And so we have that. And then another way in which it's used is descriptive. For example, in Acts 3.10, they were filled with wonder and amazement. It's descriptive. Acts 5.17, they were filled with indignation. It's descriptive of their character and what is going on there. So now we come to our topic this morning, what the Bible teaches about grieving and quenching. Because if we're being filled by the Spirit and then we sin, that is described by these two words. And yet there's debate about this. And so I want to look at the context and talk about uh, just exactly what this means. So Ephesians 4.30 is the passage on grieving the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 is the passage on quenching the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, as we look at this, we understand the sealing ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. We talked about that already. And so we're just focusing on what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? And then we'll look at 1 Thessalonians 5.19 and what it means to quench the Holy Spirit. Now, to understand this, to get to it, we have to go to context. Context is always so important. What is going on in this part of Ephesians? Remember, the first three chapters talk about uh, all of the riches uh, that God has given us and all of the, the, the blessings that God has given us. And then in the next two and a half chapters, the focus is on the walk of the believer. And then in the last chapter, it's the warfare of the believer. So we have all the things God has done for us in those first three chapters. But starting in chapter 4, it's going to shift to application. And there Paul begins, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, the key phrase here is to walk worthy. It has an imperatival sense because he says, I, I beseech you or I, I entreat you, I encourage you to walk worthy. And this is a key word that is used several times in Ephesians. It's the Greek word peripateo, which has the literal meaning of walking, going step by step, walking somewhere or doing something step by step. But it has a figurative sense. Now, the figurative sense doesn't come into play until you get into the Koine period. 
uh, after uh, 300. No, ancient Greek did not, uh, classical Greek did not have a figurative meaning. It just used in a literal sense. But by the time you get into the Koine, it's used as an idiom or a figure of speech for how a person conducts their life, how they live their life. What are the characteristics of the way you live your life? Uh, How do you, what kind of uh, character traits do you exhibit? Uh, What are the priorities in your life? How do you organize your life? What is important? What is not important? Uh, what would people say if they were to describe your character? So that is the idea, is how do you conduct your life? And the idea is that we see in the use of this word is that there are two ways that we conduct our life. We either do it in a way that is worthy of that which we have received from the Lord. And that means that we recognize how much he's blessed us with and we're not, we can't earn it. It was freely given to us, but because we've been given so much, our response of gratitude is that we want to live in a way that brings honor to God because he's done so much to us. It's motivated uh, motivated by, by grace. And that's, that's the, the uh, positive. But it's also used in a negative sense not to walk, not to walk according to the course of this world. And so we have the positive and we have the negative. It's the same word that we have over in Galatians 5.16, walk by means of the Spirit. So we have to connect these dots. The the positive walk traits that we see emphasized in Ephesians are what it means to walk by means of the Spirit over in Galatians uh, 5.16. Now, let's just look at a couple of things. At the beginning, in the first half of the epistle, we see the word used twice. It's used many times in the last part. It's used actually five times in the second part. But the first part is used uh, descriptively in Ephesians 2.2, talking about the uh, life of the unsaved Gentile, and Ephesians 2, 1 says that you were, uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, in which you once conducted your life. It's characterized by trespasses and sins. Everybody's a sinner. Some people get real offended by that because they think sin just applies to somebody who is a racist or somebody who is uh, you know, a sexist, somebody who is a conservative, somebody who's, who's a, you know, white, uh, American, evangelical, Bible-believing, dispensational, free grace Christian. Then you, 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 you sin, but, but, but they don't. Okay, those are the big social sins. We've had these social sins in the past. Uh, the, we had uh, child labor, you had slavery, you had... Um, that you were intemperate, you were a drunk. All of these were identified as big social sins back in the 19th century because America became influenced, like Europe did, with this with uh, European uh, Protestant liberalism, and they changed the meaning of the word kingdom to a temporal sense. And we're living in the kingdom of Christ, so let's clean it up. And so. We can't experience all the blessings of this kingdom the Bible talks about until we get rid of all these sins. So let's get rid of slavery. Let's get rid of, of tobacco. Let's get rid of, of alcohol. Let's get rid of uh, all of these different uh, social sins. And today it's a different collection of social sins. But there are a lot of non-Christians who think, well, those are the things that, that we're talking about. And they're not guilty of those things, so they're okay. The Bible says that sin is anything that is contrary to the character of God. And it involves the worst sins are mental attitude sins. The worst sins have to do with arrogance and pride and and anger and hatred and jealousy because those are what motivate the external sins. And somebody can be just filled with bitterness and anger and hatred, but they've managed to cloak it in a very nice, wonderful uh, veneer. And then all of a sudden something happens and you begin to see how bad they really are. But, but in our arrogance, 
we deny the fact that we're really sinners. I'm pretty good. I mean, you know, those people live next to me, they're really bad. That guy I work with is really bad. Uh, you ought to see uh, President Trump. He's horrible. Uh, what a sinner. And, and so everybody else is worse than they are, so they think they're okay, but, but they don't recognize that the measuring rod, the standard, is about a mile high, and they may be a centimeter higher than their next-door neighbor, but they still have uh, a mile to go to even come up to God's standard. So everybody lived according to sin, the sin and trespasses, and it's according to a standard, the course of this world as we saw. It's according to the prince and the power of the air. That's Satan. He is the one who energizes the world system. All the philosophies, all the religions that are in the world historically and in the present all come from the mind of Satan. That's his way of thinking. It's characterized by his sense of A, arrogance, and B, autonomy, independence from God. He thinks he can be God, and he's independent of God. And that's exactly what happens with us when we're living according to the sin nature. We think we're the center of the world and that we can take care of our life better than God can. So Paul says that this, uh, when he's writing to the Ephesian Gentiles, these are the sins you once walked in. This is what characterized your life. Then when he gets to the end of that section, Ephesians 2.10, he says we are his masterpiece, his work of art, as I've translated it, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That should, that's what should characterize, characterize our lives, these good works. And that's what begins to be talked about when we get to Ephesians 4. So I've already covered uh, 4.1. We're to walk worthy of that calling. That calling is to follow Christ and to imitate Christ. Ephesians 4.17, Paul said, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. So we have a positive command in Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy, and a negative in 4.17, no longer walk like the rest of the Gentiles. But see, when we're saved, first saved, we still think like an unsaved person. We still have all those nasty habits we had as an unsaved person. We still have all those comfortable mental attitude sins that we had as an unsaved person. And it's only as we grow as a Christian walking by the Spirit that we stop being conformed to the world and transformed into the character of Christ. So this is the... this context of 417, uh, the next time we have a walk is in Ephesians 5.2, and between them is when Paul is going to say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So 5.2 comes back with a positive command, walk in love as Christ also has loved us. So that becomes the standard. We're to love one another as Christ loved us. In Ephesians 5.8, we have another positive command. You were once darkness, that is unsaved. You were born in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then Ephesians 5.15 is uh, the last one. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. See, a lot of times we need to learn how to make wise decisions. A wise decision is not necessarily a a have to do with uh, moral issues. It's It has to do with applying the word, what's going to give me the best opportunities in the future uh, to get to Bible class, to go to church, to study the word, to grow spiritually. Uh, it may not be a right or wrong, whether to live in this house or that house or different other decisions. It's wisdom. It's, it's, it's practical. It's a choice between something that uh, is more beneficial and something that is maybe lead, may lead to or have the potential of self-destruction. The difference between wisdom and being being a fool. It's not necessarily moral versus immoral, scriptural versus non-scriptural. It has to do with application. So we're to walk as wise. Now let's look at the immediate context of Ephesians 4:30. Let no corrupt word 
proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So we have a negative command talking about how we should speak. Nothing is more convicting to all of us than the passages in Scripture that talk about the sins of the tongue because we so easily, and that's James' point in James 3, 1 and following, is that we are so easily succumbed to the sins of the tongue. And that includes uh, expressing our anger, expressing uh, bitterness. It includes slander, uh, gossip, uh, maligning people, saying all sorts of horrible things. In fact, the word here uh, that is translated corrupt is a word that is used to describe rotten fruit, something that is rotten, something that is putrid. It has the idea of something that is no longer fit for use. So let let no putrid or rotten word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that which is going to improve the situation and that which is going to be great, come as grace to hearers. I talked about this recently, that so often we hear people who focus, they complain all the time. Everything that comes out of their mouth is negative. They may be complaining about politics. They may be complaining about uh, the COVID virus. They're complaining about their kids. They're complaining about their spouse. They're complaining about their parents, whatever it is. And, and people just don't want to be around that. But if you are walking by the Spirit, then your word should be gracious and kind, and it gives uh, something positive. It imparts a positive spiritual benefit. That's what it means by edification to the hearer. So the first thing that we see here is that Paul is describing things that should not characterize the Christian life. And in verse 30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The word there for grief is a word we've studied many times. It's the Greek word lupeo. It means sorrow. It, it can mean um, what some today would call emotional pain. It can mean something like anxiety or something of that nature, but it is feeling the, the pressure of negative circumstances. And it can be grief over the death of someone or the loss of someone. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't grieve in that sense, in that emotional sense, because the Holy Spirit is God. This is in a class of words that are anthropopathisms. Uh, anthro comes from the Greek word anthropos, meaning man. Pathism comes from the word uh, having to do pathos, having to do with the emotions. And so what it means is attributing to God human emotions that he doesn't actually possess in order to give us a frame of reference for understanding his plans or his purposes. This is debated by some theologians. There, I had a seminary professor who said there's no anthropopathisms in the Bible. Well, I doubt that. Uh, but you do, and you clearly have anthropomorphisms. Talk about the eye of God, the hand of God, the arm of God. Uh, God does not have a literal eye or eyes or hands or arms. And so an anthropomorphism is the f- uh, human form is attributed to God. And he doesn't actually possess those human forms. So we get the parallel definition on anthropopathism that human emotions are attributed to God that he doesn't actually possess for the purpose of giving us a a frame of reference. Now, think about a situation, many of you are parents or grandparents, and you see uh, your child uh, do something and just it runs counter to everything that you've ever taught them to do. And how do you feel about that? You're disappointed. Sometimes there may be some resentment, maybe some anger. Uh, you feel sad because you know what the consequences are going to be. That's the, that, that's the idea that you want to hold on to is that the standards have been violated. And when your standards are violated, you know there are going to be negative consequences. And the same thing is true here. When the Holy Spirit's, when the standards of God are violated and we sin, then that means that God, the Holy Spirit, 
uh, ha- that the standards of righteousness are violated, and so God, the Holy Spirit, is going to need to do something judicially. One of the things he does judicially is get us back into fellowship. When we sin, we don't lose the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't depart us. We're permanently indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, from the instant that we are saved. But when we're walking by the Spirit, it's positive. He's filling us with the Word of God. And as we learn the Word of God, we learn how to live. We learn what the principles are. We learn the the, the standards of, of living as a member of God's royal family. When we're walking by the Spirit, everything is great, and he's using all of that to positively produce our spiritual growth. But when we sin, the Holy Spirit has to shift gears because when we're not walking with the Lord, we're not in fellowship, we're not enjoying that fellowship with him, God the Holy Spirit needs to get us back into fellowship so that we can continue our positive spiritual growth. I remember hearing someone years years ago say, well, the problem with that whole view of needing to confess your sins and everything, uh, the problem with that whole view is they don't believe that God, the Holy Spirit, is doing anything uh, if you're out of fellowship. And that's a complete distortion and misunderstanding of this whole doctrine. It's not that God, the Holy Spirit, isn't doing anything. It's just that he isn't doing anything to promote your spiritual growth because his focal point is now getting you back into the, onto the path so that you can go forward, so that you can walk by the Spirit. His, his responsibility at that point is rebuke and correct instead of positively developing spiritual growth. So this idea of <clears throat> this idea of grieving the Spirit is not something that's unique to the uh, New Testament. You also have it in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 63.10. Now, some people are saying, well, wait a minute. There's no Trinity in the Old Testament. Well, you just haven't read it well. There's a lot of places where you have God, Yahweh, speaking to uh, his servant, who is are speaking to the angel of the Lord, who is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and or his Messiah, his servant. And then uh, he makes a statement related to my spirit. Well, you have in several passages in Isaiah, all three members of the Trinity mentioned. So here we have uh, a mention of two persons in the Trinity, talking about Israel. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So grieving the spirit has something to do with rebellion. Well, the the Hebrew word that is translated trespass is really a word that means rebellion. Sin is rebellion against God. And so when Israel rebelled against God, it grieved his Holy Spirit. The his is God the Father. The Holy Spirit is God the Holy Spirit. So that's two members of the Trinity right there. In Isaiah 63.10, so there is a an Old Testament uh, precedent for that. And so when we look uh, at this, we realize that in Ephesians 5.18, to be filled by the Spirit is going to stop when we're grieving the Holy Spirit. Now let's look a little more at the context of Ephesians 4.30. We're told not to grieve the Spirit in Ephesians 4.30, and then that is followed by Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So we have what you are to avoid in verse 31 and what we are positively to do in verse 32. Now let's talk about these terms just a minute. Bitterness. Bitterness is when we harbor resentment towards someone because of anger at a real or a perceived injury. We may just take offense. Somebody said something innocent. They didn't mean anything by it, and yet we take it as a negative, and then we just keep working it over, working it over until we become more and more angry and upset and and bitter about it. So this is bitterness. It's a long-term uh, cancer, uh, spiritual cancer uh, of our soul. 
based on either a perceived or real injury from somebody, and we just keep nurturing that that anger. The next two words, wrath and anger, are two different Greek words. The first is thumos, and the second is orge. And what's interesting is they are about 90% synonymous. But when you have them together, uh, the, the word thumos has to do with uh, outbursts of anger, somebody who loses their temper quickly. And it's the result of not getting your way. It's the result of somebody uh, doesn't respond to us the way we think they should, and uh, we feel rejected, and so we we get angry about that. It, it can run the uh, run the range from indignation or irritability to rage and resentment, whereas the word for anger uh, has that idea of uh, really thinking about it. This has to do with more of a long-term rage uh, that is in the soul. Now, clamor is an interesting word. This clamor literally means a shout or an outcry. It's used in Acts 23.29, I mean, excuse me, 23.9, where you have, it's, it's a courtroom scene and with the San, Sanhedrin, and Paul says, well, I'm really being tried for my belief in the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. This was a huge bone of contention between them. And so the, the, um, when he says he's on trial for the belief in the resurrection, up jump the Pharisees, and they start yelling at the Sadducees, and the Sadducees start yelling at them. And both sides just lose control, and they're arguing and yelling and shouting at each other. And that's the basic meaning of the word clamor. It means... Uh, yelling or, or screaming at each other. Now, I, the first thing that came to my mind was all these street riots that we've been seeing on the news all over the country. And you hear of Christians who think that it is really a good idea to support Antifa and Black Lives Matters and all these other organizations. But how, my question is, how, if you are a believer in Christ, and you're being told to not be bitter, that don't harbor resentments. This whole idea of paying reparations to uh, African Americans because five generations back uh, their ancestors were brought over as slaves, uh, they weren't ever enslaved. I never enslaved them. You never enslaved them. This is a long-harbored bitterness. I know a black pastor in this town who has said in private to two of us who are white that there's uh, that he can't talk about some of these things in his church because people are so resentful of slavery. Well, my question to him is, then why are you a pastor? You're not addressing the issues. Well, then I won't have a job. That's the real subtext. And so this is a real problem. Uh, there's resentment. There's bitterness. There's uh, long-term anger, thought-out anger, wrath, clamor. All of these are violated. No Christian can be part of any organization where this is the mental attitude that characterizes that kind of an organization. And uh, and that shouldn't characterize any of us. So we're to put it away. It's like the word there has to do with like taking off a garment. You remove it from being characteristic of your life. And in contrast, what you're to be is kind to one another. That doesn't mean they deserve your kindness. That's what grace is all about. It's undeserving goodness or kindness to somebody. So you respond in kindness and gentleness to somebody who doesn't deserve it at all. That's what this is talking about, forgiving one another. The word there for forgiving is based on the word for grace. It's not the afiemi, which is the word that deals with canceling a debt, Although this word is used in that way at some times, here it's emphasizing the grace aspect. They don't deserve forgiveness, but they are to be forgiven. Uh, tenderhearted has to do with mercy. And the comparison is even as God in Christ forgave you. There's not a single sin committed by any human being that's going to demand more forgiveness than the forgiveness of God to human, human beings. God forgave us. We're no better than anybody else doesn't matter who you are, 
and God's grace is the foundation for how Christians ought to ought to deal with uh, those who mistreated them. And this chapter, we have a chapter break here, but it's an awkward place for a chapter break. In Ephesians 5.1, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, be imitators of God. See, we're to imitate God in all of his attributes and not the next-door neighbor and not other people in our culture or our subculture or our friends. We are to imitate God as dear children and walk in love. Love should characterize our our lives. There's nothing loving about these riots and these demonstrations. There's nothing loving the way a lot of businesses operate and treat their employees. There's nothing loving about how employees are maybe reactive to their employers. And there's nothing loving about some of the bitterness and anger and hostility that goes on in a lot of marriages. All of these things are what Paul's going to address in the last part of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So when we sin, when we're committing any of these sins, and they're just representative, when we're committing any of these sins, then that grieves the Holy Spirit. It's violating his uh, righteous standard, and so now he has to operate in terms of getting us to uh, change our minds and he rebukes us and corrects us. Now the next is First Thessalonians 5.19. This is a command in the midst of a series of commands, so it's interesting to see that context. The command is not to quench the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is spenumi, which means to extinguish something like extinguish a fire, are to quench something, like if you're very, very thirsty, your throat's on fire, you're parched, and you put that out by uh, drinking water. So you can quench your thirst or you can quench a fire by putting the fire out. So the idea here is to cause a, a fervent activity to stop. So the Holy Spirit is doing what in our lives when we're walking by the Spirit? He's bringing the word of God to our mind so that we can grow and so that we can mature. And we aren't to stop that activity. We stop it when we sin. Now, what's interesting is the context here. Notice the commands. First, that's 5.16. Rejoice always. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy. Number two, rejoice always. So we're to rejoice always. We're to pray without ceasing. So that doesn't mean that you're just always praying, but it's that you're consistently praying throughout the day in your life. And these can just be little bullet prayers, just thank you, Lord, or uh, something of that nature. So we're to rejoice, we're to pray without ceasing, we're to give thanks. Ephesians says in that chapter 4, we are to be thankful for all things, and here we are to give thanks in everything, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. So there's three different areas in the spiritual life. And then you have this this uh, negative command, do not quench the Spirit. So all of those that we just talked about, God the Holy Spirit produces joy in our lives. He is the means by whom we pray when we're in right relationship with, with the Spirit. And he's the one who produces a grace attitude and gratitude in our lives And so if we sin, we're stopping that. That's what it means. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Now, that has to do with spiritual gifts. At this time, the New Testament gift of prophecy was still in effect, and so they were told not to despise someone who had the spiritual gift of prophecy. But they were to test all things, that is, evaluate whatever was said against the word of God and to hold fast to what was good, and then, in conclusion, abstain from every category. Usually this is translated abstain from every form of evil. People get the idea that what that means is, is or, or from every kind of evil, rather, is that right, I've got I've to avoid everything. But this is talking about every category of evil. And it's, it, we are to watch our lives and not to get uh, involved with different types, different categories of sin, all of which will quench the Holy Spirit. So when we are 
Walking by the Spirit, when we sin, we're quenching or we're grieving the Holy Spirit, and then we're walking in darkness. And as we continue to sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit, quenches the Holy Spirit until we confess sin. And when we confess sin, at that instant, we're restored to fellowship. This is the most important thing we must understand so that we can continue to grow and mature in the spiritual life. Now, next time, we're going to come back and look at what will be a tricky topic because it's often misunderstood, as each of these are, and that is what does it mean in the Scripture when it says that we are led by the Spirit? Most people think that has to do with divine guidance. I'll give you a hint. Most people are wrong. It has nothing whatsoever to do with divine guidance. Divine guidance has nothing to do with the context of either of those passages. Both of them, in fact, are talking about walking by the Spirit. So we'll come back and look at that as we wrap up our study on what the Holy Spirit is doing in the believer today. That will be next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today and focus on all that we have in Christ that we are to walk worthy of that which we have been given, uh, not to gain or to gain salvation, but to show our gratitude for all that we have been given in our salvation. Father, we pray that we might take to heart what we have learned. We can never be sinless, but when we sin, we need to confess sin so that we do not stay in a status of grieving the Holy Spirit or quenching the Holy Spirit. We pray that if there's anyone here or anyone listening who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would recognize that's the most important decision anyone can make in life, that we need to trust in him because we are all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there needs to be someone to pay that sin penalty for us, and the Lord Jesus Christ did that on the cross where he bore in his own body our sins so that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us, that we might gain your righteousness and be declared justified, not by anything that we have done, but by what Christ did on the cross. And that is our simply by trusting in him, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for being refreshed by your word today and pray that Uh, We can be encouraged and strengthened to press on in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.